You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 48. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today on the show, our guest is the executive director of the Green Mountain Club, Mike DeBonis. The Green Mountain Club is the nonprofit organization responsible for managing our country's oldest long-distance hiking trail, the Long Trail. For those of you who missed last week's episode, the Long Trail follows the ridgeline of the Green Mountains in Vermont for 273 miles all the way through the state, hitting virtually every major peak in Vermont along the way. My mom and I through-hiked the trail a couple of years back, and our trip is documented in the new short documentary, On the Trail, which you can watch on the Eyes on Conservation website at eyesonconservation.com. Our guest, Mike DeBonis, is also a long-distance hiker, and in our interview today, we trade stories from our experiences on both the Long Trail and the Appalachian Trail. Mike and I also discuss the mission and history of the Green Mountain Club, with a specific focus on the conservation benefits that come along with the protection of the Long Trail. Let's jump into the interview. All right. I am here with Mike DeBonis, who is the executive director of the Green Mountain Club. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. It's uh, nice to be here, Matt. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Um, I want to start off by just getting a little bit of background from you. Um, so you grew up in Vermont, and you have a background in forestry. So obviously you, you have, it, it seems like you must have a, a deep connection with the forests of northern New England, and, and in Vermont specifically. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if we can sort of track this connection with the forests of northern New England uh, back to its source. Maybe you can share some memories from childhood of spending time in the mountains of Vermont? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's, it's interesting because it's one of those things that we strive to uh, further or enhance is that connection that people have with the outdoors and trying to figure out what it is and how we can capitalize on it is really hard because everyone has a different relationship with the land and everyone develops that relationship differently. We all have our own story about that started and or how that started, and I'm, and I'm no different. I, I grew up in Vermont and grew up in a rural area where I had ready access to the outdoors. So it wasn't even anything that I thought about. It was always just there. And my father worked for the Forest Service in central Vermont, and there were always opportunities to get outside and, and hike and explore the backwoods, uh, go out skiing. So it was just part of everyday life. Uh, but it for me, I think it was it was actually a school trip that I went on and it was on the long trail. It was uh, the it was Brandon Gap, and there was I remember it vividly. Where there was probably someone from State and Fish and Wildlife there who probably didn't think much about the day after it was over. But for me, it was interesting because he made the connection between wildlife and recreation and the long trail, and how the trail was passing this beaver pond. And it was just really neat to think about the opportunity that you could get on this trail and and hike for, for miles and miles and eventually go to Canada or uh, go to Massachusetts. And it was probably one of the first times for, at least in my own mind, I'd really made the connection between uh, the, the outdoors and myself. Uh, so that was kind of the, the spark. And after that, I, I followed a career of, of spending a lot of time in the outdoors for recreation and also pursuing it in school from Johnson State College in Vermont to 
studying forestry in, at Yale in, in New Haven, Connecticut, and then working as a forester for, for a number of years. Uh, so it's always been a really important part of my life and, and something that I wanted to commit myself to professionally for essentially making sure that the resources was well protected and available for, for others to enjoy. When I was 19, I hiked the northernmost part of the Appalachian Trail. Um, and, you know, I, 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 there, there are certain experiences, I think, that just kind of totally shift your perspective. And, and that was one of them for me, um, just spending, you know, two months, you know, living in the woods, basically. It, it really took that experience that I had had that I think I had seen as separate. Um, and it, it, it took this, these natural areas and it made them my home, you know, because I actually lived there right. um, in these natural areas for two whole months. Um, and during that time, you know, those forests were my home. Um, and it really does. I think it's something unique about um, long distance uh, hiking trails. Uh, it's a type of experience you don't really get any other way. Yeah, exactly. So um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about your, your forestry background. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of work you did in this field before becoming a part of the Green Mountain Club? Yeah, so I you know, went through a, a traditional forestry education and had these visions that I would be romantically walking through the woods, cruising timber, a uh, very solitary exercise. But it, it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, I ended up really cutting my teeth in Maine in, in the community forestry world. So this is work that's, it's still traditional forestry, but it really has a community focus and there's a bit of an urban forestry component to it. And I really like the fact or this, this relationship between people and trees or people and forests. And the, in some ways the, the values are a little different when you're talking about individual trees or street trees in a, a community or parks and, it, it tends to focus the relationship a bit more than if you're talking about a vast forest in the backcountry. Uh, so it was just really neat to think about the human relationship, and it was something that I, I really liked. Uh, then I had a chance to work for an organization in New Mexico called the, the Forest Guild, and it's a national association of foresters that's focused on responsible forest stewardship. So it has a very strong ethical code, really about valuing nature in itself and the relationship between people and nature and had good good fortune to work there for about eight years with a wonderful core of foresters around the country that practice this really interesting form of thoughtful forest stewardship. And for me, it was it was just a wonderful balance between the two. And and then I had a chance to come back come back to the Green Mountain Club or come back home to Vermont and work for the Green Mountain Club, which was a, a dream come true. And you know, it's funny, some folks say, Well, gosh, you know, it's not really a, a forester's job. In some ways, I think it actually is. The, the skills I learned as a forester are the people skills, and it's understanding values and relationships and resource management for multiple benefit. That's exactly what the Green Mountain Club is doing, and my work as a forester, I think, has positioned me well to, to steward the, the club at this time. Uh, so in some ways, I think it is very much a forester's job, just maybe not as much focus on trees as, as some people would think. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think I think you're right. You know, most people probably don't think of the job of, you know, someone with a forestry background like yourself um, as, you know, being focused on these connections between human communities and the forest itself. 
Um, but it makes a lot of sense, right, that that would be a central piece of what you have to do in order to merit, uh, in order to manage um, a piece of land. I mean, I, that's, that's one of the key things that the Green Mountain Club does, right, is, I mean, there's all this land that, that the club has easements on or that the, the club owns outright and um, that is you know responsible for making all these important decisions about how to manage that land, right? Yeah, and it's – so you think about 25,000 acres that the Green Mountain Club has stewardship responsibility for. So these are, as you said, either lands that we owned outright in fee – or the property owner, or we, or we have an interest in the land, either a conservation easement or often a trail easement. And these these are wildly different lands in a lot of ways. They could be uh, public lands, they could be private lands, municipal lands, with, with multiple uses. And the trail is dynamic, and, it, and the lands that it passes through is, is dynamic. And to, to manage the trail so you protect that resource, that concept, in this this ever-changing fabric of land is is a challenge. And to do that, I think you have to be open to multiple uses and you have to be open to change, but you also have to be diligent and make sure that you're protecting those core resources that make the trail what it is and that wilderness experience what it is, even though if, even though that idea of wilderness changes over time. You know, you, you touch on this really important point, which is the wilderness experience. Um, as maybe being almost separate from like wilderness itself, like I'm not, it almost doesn't matter like how you define wilderness, but that wilderness experience of just you know having the opportunity to get out into the forest and for people who are you know doing extended hikes on the long trail, um, you know having the opportunity to make that forest you know your home for a period of time, yeah, um, is something really special. Yeah, and you talked about it how you were on the Appalachian Trail, you that was your home and you, you had an experience and whether you classify it as a wilderness experience or not, you know, I don't know, but it, it is a backcountry experience and you, you can have that in areas that aren't technically a designated wilderness by the federal definition. And it's that, that outdoor experience, which, you know, I would argue that folks that were hiking the trail in the, in the twenties and thirties probably had a similar experience, even though the land may have been different and certainly the, the culture we lived in and the, the times were distant, but different, but the ability to be out there and live on the land and you're still hiking the same miles is relatively the same. And it's that kind of core experience that is in a large part what the Green Mountain Club is protecting in addition to the, the resource itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those people were probably doing it for a lot of the same reasons and probably got a very similar experience to what, you know, what people get out of it today. Um, which is, which is a really neat component to it. And I mean, that's something that is, um, that is pretty unique to the long trail, I think, because there is this, this rich history, um, behind the Green Mountain Club and the long trail. Um, and so I, I, I think this is a good opportunity to maybe take a, a, a little step back and, um, maybe you can just share, um, some of that background, um, some of that history with, uh, our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with the long trail. Yeah, so James Taylor is credited with essentially coming up with the idea, the concept of the Long Trail. And, and this happened in 1910, and the Long Trail was the first oldest long-distance hiking trail in the country. And Vermont at that time was a was pretty much a different place. If you visit Vermont now, it's a little less than 80% forested. It's a very mountainous, forested, treed state. 
over 100 years ago, 105 years ago, it was a different place in that it was the reverse. It was almost 80% ag lands. Sheep farming and grazing was very popular. And there had been a lot of significant impacts on the land. And Taylor's vision was to think of this long-distance hiking trail in the model of trails that were in Europe at the time as a way of connecting people to their natural world. And he just wasn't able to find trails to many of the mountains in the state that he lived in and, and thought that maybe by connecting the peaks together, it would connect people to the natural world. And I think an extension of that is you you sort of measure what you treasure. If people got to experience the land and built a connection to it, they might care more about it and then protect it. And this vision, he was a great salesman and a, a real wonderful motivator. He drove this idea of this trail and got the support and formed the Green Mountain Club. And they were really charged with this this mission of connecting people to their natural world. And, and the long trail was just a great way to do it. And it, it proved to be a, a really wonderful idea and has endured for, for over 100 years. And I would argue that it's, it's as good of a vehicle today as it was back then for connecting people with the natural world. But it was just one of the tools that they were thinking of, in addition to other trails and other things, to get people outside. One piece of this history that, that I think a lot of people don't realize um, is the connection between the Long Trail and, and the Appalachian Trail. I mean, the Appalachian Trail is obviously a whole lot longer, um, much more well-known, um, but uh, in a lot of ways, the, it was the creation of the Long Trail that inspired um, the creation of the Appalachian Trail. Isn't that, isn't that correct? Yeah, and in fact, in, in our headquarters in Waterbury Center, we have a Long Trail guide uh, from the 20s that Benton Mackay, who's, who's credited with essentially envisioning creating the idea of the Appalachian Trail, it's his Long Trail guidebook, has his name on it, and it was on the Long Trail in southern Vermont where he, he got this vision, this idea. And so it, I think there were similar, similar motivations whether for, for Taylor and the Long Trail and Mackay for the Appalachian Trail, and it all really bubbled up in, in this area in southern Vermont. And, and it's interesting. So, yes, the, the Long Trail came first, uh, for by a few years, but the the motivations and I think the the concept uh, and the mechanics of it are very similar. The goals of the trail are similar too, and the fact that you know both the Long Trail and the Appalachian Trail have this, at least in the creation of those trails and how they sort of uh, uh, you know decided on the route. Um, I mean, it, I, I think both of the goals of the trail were to, I mean, to hit as many major peaks as possible, right? Yeah, and, and the Long Trail was a footpath in the wilderness is what it was billed as, and it, it, it was envisioned as a high mountain trail across the peaks of the Green Mountains, and it, it is largely that today through heroic efforts in land protection uh, to, to make it so, and, and the Appalachian Trail is over 2,000 miles long, it's so much bigger, and crosses multiple land jurisdictions in multiple states, but it's still that idea uh, that you're you're essentially walking the Appalachian mountain chain, either either north or south, or or day hikes. Yeah, and I, I think you know, especially um, especially out here in the West where where I live, um, I, I think there's this perception of you know the the mountains of the Northeast um, and just the Appalachian Range in general um, as 
being, um, I don't know, on a lesser scale than uh, than the mountains that we have out here in, in the West and in the Rockies, um, which is certainly true. I mean, those those peaks aren't nearly as high above sea level. Um, but I think folks fail to understand, you know, the, the, the true ruggedness and the level of difficulty um, that hikers experience on the long trail. Yeah, it, it's not an, an easy trail. And and some folks, and myself included, if I if I go back and look at my trail journal from when I was hiking on it, it's you know it, I would complain about how steep it was and what were the trail designers thinking? Why would they put the trail up the side of this mountain? And wasn't there an easier way? And I think it's a common comment. And you know, at the time that it was built, the, initially the goal was to to get the trail on the ground, and then over time it was improved. Uh, but but Vermont is is a rugged place, and and the ability to get a trail. You know, up and down a mountain, sometimes there, there's just not the capacity or the geology or geography to to put in a western style trail with with switchbacks and and so as a result, you have a pretty rugged trail that that's been well loved over over many years and with a lot of up and down. And I think there's this interesting mix of pretty rugged trail that tends to follow the the fall line straight up and down, and then there's new portions of trail on on the system that have switchbacks and have been built with kind of new thinking and, and new resources uh, to hopefully protect that treadway for, for many, many years. So I, I'm sure that in, in the time since you've become the executive director of the Green Mountain Club that, that you've learned quite a bit about, um, you know, the history and the background behind the Long Trail and the Green Mountain Club. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, is there – a particular, you know, a little tidbit or anecdote or, you know, something particularly interesting or maybe something surprising that you've learned about the trail or the Green Mountain Club, um, you know, since you became a part of the organization? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot. And, you know, I think generally speaking, the, the, the connection that people have and the history that folks have with, with the trails is absolutely amazing. There's literally binders and books full of these fascinating tales about people's time on, on the trail. And these are folks that are hiking and recreating, but then there's the whole other side of the equation of the thousands of volunteers that are out there maintaining it. And they're really the key to keeping the thing going. And uh, some of those stories are are fascinating. We actually just came across some uh, information from someone's estate uh, of caretakers from the 1940s that, were stationed on Mount Mansfield and Campbell's Hump, similar to the way that caretakers are on the mountain now that are protecting the resource, educating hikers, uh, managing waste, and and being good stewards of the land. But there was record times walking from, from point to point along the trail, and it was interesting to compare it to to modern times and modern records. And the, the times aren't all that different. And it was just interesting that a lot of ways things have so much has changed in that time, but uh, the ability of young folks to, to to walk on the trail a lot faster than I can hasn't uh, hasn't changed. And, <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean it's, it's it's really neat that that you guys have that record, right? That yeah. you, um, all these trail journals still exist, and you can look back at these moments in time um, and and you know see some of the differences, but also see in a lot of ways how similar those experiences were to the experiences that people have today. Yeah. And I, I think another interesting thing is we were looking through some old guidebooks uh, the other day, and you know, back in you know, the 30s and 40s, and 
in years ago, there was a, a really big porcupine problem. And in the recommendation in the guidebook was actually to, to kill the porcupines that people encountered on the trail, which is a really kind of counter to what a lot of people would think and the environmental ethic one would have on the trails that you don't go out thinking that you're going to uh, kill uh, things that you encounter in nature. But it was at that time, they were such a nuisance to the shelters and the trail community that it was really a, a condoned practice uh, within the Green Mountain Club. And uh, the porcupine isn't as much of a problem anymore, uh, and, and times have changed. And I think some of the environmental sensitivities have, have changed about how we uh, relate to our our land and, and the things that live in it. So we, we, we talked a little bit about this, but um, I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, sort of big picture what conservation goals you know you have uh, you see in the future for the Green Mountain Club and the Long Trail? Um, you know, what are some of those big picture conservation goals that that you and all the other folks at at the Green Mountain Club are striving towards? I think the biggest one of the big ones and in an immediate one is is finally protecting the Long Trail. Over the past twenty thirty years, tremendous amount of work has been done to protect the trail and that's really protecting it through a conservation easement or buying the land so that trail is protected over time and there's about five miles left of the 270 miles of trail so there's a tremendous amount of work has been done but there's a little bit left to go and these are the hardest miles to get but i think once that's done you you really have a corridor that'll that'll be there for for perpetuity i think the next thing beyond that is is, is the conservation of of the resource. And again, it's a much bigger picture of thinking about how the trail fits in with all the lands that it crosses and the lands that are adjacent to it and being in a position to steward that resource for, for many, many years to come. And I think that'll be a challenge for the Green Mountain Club. Uh, it will force us to be open to different uses of the trail that uh, that are maybe we're not even aware of at this point and to partner with other folks that we don't partner with right now and to really work together to meet the demands and the challenges facing the landscape, whether it's increased use or whether it's climate change or uh, whether it's development. Uh, I think it's going to force the Green Mountain Club to, to take a different approach to how it stewards that land over time. And you guys just um, recently completed um, a, a pretty significant project, a, a, a footbridge over the Winooski River, which I understand is um, a, a, an issue that the Green Mountain Club has been sort of trying to figure out, you know, like the best way to come up with a sort of a, a, a crossing of this river for a long time. Yeah. And you can, for those listening, you can think of probably the, the toughest, most congested area to manage a trail. It's in the Winooski River Valley, a major river in Vermont. You have an interstate, uh, you have a highway, you have a railroad, you have development, multiple land ownerships, and then you have Camel's Hump to the south and Bolton Mountain and Mount Mansfield to the north. And it was probably the area on the trail where it was most at risk and that that corridor could have been broken. And so the focus has been probably legitimately or with a lot of effort over the last 30 years to find a way through and protect it. And probably for 100 years to figure out a way to cross the river. And, and last year, Last or last June, uh, that day finally happened where we finished a new footbridge, which is a permanent crossing of the Winooski River 
but also completing the, the fabric of land and the trail network to connect the trail through that area and protect it uh, for future generations. And that took a very, very long time to complete. You mentioned this concept of of the trail corridor, right? Um, And I I guess what I'm wondering is, um, you know, what, what benefits does having this corridor that runs, you know, north to south all the way through the entire state um, I mean, does this have benefits for wildlife? Um, I mean, does this have benefits to the overall environment and ecosystem in Vermont, besides just the fact that, you know, hikers are able to uh, to sort of get through here and have this, you know, really amazing experience? Yeah, I think if you look at the, the con- or the perspective of just the trail itself, a footpath that's a couple feet wide, running 270 miles up and down the state of Vermont, you know, the, the impact of that trail in and of itself you know, may, might be fairly minor if, you, if you're talking about the impact on, on the landscape. But if, if, if you look at the land that that trail is on, whether it's public land, the U.S. Forest Service land, or the state of Vermont land, or the private land that it goes through, those blocks, uh, those acres are, are varying sizes that, that go well beyond that two-foot two footpath. And when you string all of those lands together, and you look at the the protected or conserved working lands that the trail is connected to, then you're talking a very significant impact, thousands and thousands of acres. And whether they're lands that are working lands, producing timber and and other resources that drives the economy and supports local communities, there's a huge impact there. Or whether they're protected lands that create habitat for wildlife and continuity for, for wildlife corridors, there's benefit there or whether it's lands that are uh, as the trails on the peak on the ridge line lands on either side of that ridge that are really the sources of our watersheds and bring the water down to the population clean and abundant water that is that is really um, priceless yeah, I think you you really can get at the tremendous value of the trail as it relates to the other lands uh, that it's connected to one of the things that um that stood out to me in, in my memory of the time I spent hiking on the long trail was how much uh, wildlife sign um, we saw along the trail. You know, a lot of evidence of, of moose, um, you know, using that trail to get around, um, you know, lots of tracks, uh, lots of scat. It's, it's, it's just interesting to see that, you know, humans aren't the only animals that are utilizing this, uh, this footpath. No, we are... You know, we are, are one of many, and, and this year, for example, on Camel's Hump, we had some issues with bear, and bear in Vermont, are it's not anything new. Uh, they've been living here for a long time, and it's their home, and there's great bear habitat, but that connection or that interaction between humans and bear can be problematic and can pose challenges in the backcountry, and the biggest area where it became a problem was around food and food storage and keeping hikers safe by storing and treating food properly, but also keeping bears safe by, by not letting them get into food and becoming habituated and accustomed to it. And there's an education piece there where if we want to be able to coexist in the backcountry safely and keep humans safe and bears safe, we need to educate all of us about how we go about doing that and create the infrastructure to keep people safe. And uh, the good thing is that this isn't anything new and there's other states around us that have, have also been dealing with this and we can take some of those lessons learned 
and by equipping everyone that goes out in the backcountry, I think we can have a better experience and be open to the idea that we are going to have to be proactive and, and recognize that some of these things change as population shift and as climate shifts, uh, the impact on, on wildlife might mean that we have to change our own behavior and management. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a really good point is, you know, these, these wildlife human interactions, um, I mean, they're, they're really important, right. And they can be really positive, but, um, yeah, that education piece is, is certainly critical, especially with, um, you know, bears specifically and making sure people understand, you know, like the best procedures for hanging their food and, you know, dealing with, uh, uh, you know, those interactions, like when you actually see a bear, you know, on the trail, how to sort of best, best deal with that, um, is certainly important. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm wondering, I mean, you've, you've talked a bit about some of the experiences that, that you've had on the long trail. Um, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering, I mean, do you consider yourself to be a long distance hiker? I mean, have you hiked long sections of the long trail or do you have any plans to through hike it at, at any point in the future? Yeah. I've, I mean, I, I consider myself a long distance hiker. I haven't hiked the long distances in a while, but I've, I've completed an end end hike of the long trail. I did it in a couple different sections. And then about 19 years ago, I did a end to end hike or through hike of the Appalachian trail. And it was, um, it's probably not all that different than it is today. Maybe a few less people, but was a transformative, wonderful experience. And while hiking the Appalachian trail, I was able to finish uh, one portion of the long trail and then went back over a few more years and finished it. And it was, it was great. The, the, the time that you're able to spend, in the backcountry, whether it's an overnight or whether it's a multi-week long-distance hike, is so very different than I think the experience that I, I have in my day job, and uh, it's so much clearer. Where you you chart your own destiny, you carry everything on your back, and you have to answer to yourself. And sometimes, uh, what what you get back or what you hear or what you learn about yourself can be challenging. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Of it kind of having a greater understanding of what motivates me. And um, I think I, I became a better person because of it and still value that experience of, of getting out and having a connection with the land and really being in control of when I get up, how far I want to go, whether I want to take a break. Um, it's very liberating. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love that you touch on this uh, topic of self-reflection, right? Because that's something that I think almost everybody that I've talk to who who has experience you know doing long distance hikes um brings that component of it up you know the fact that you know there's there's this really interesting balance between like really strenuous physical activity but also just you know the the ability to let your mind wander uh, wander and right. the fact that you know you're forced to really to answer to yourself in a way that um, that you're not, you know, in, you know, your sort of normal day-to-day life when you have all these distractions and all these obligations and responsibilities. Um, yeah, the, the the trail is is the great, or is a great equalizer. It really strips away a lot of the things that we consider important in our day-to-day lives or the things that maybe separate us. All those things are gone, and on the trail, you're a hiker, and everybody smells bad, everybody's hungry, Everyone has to walk the same miles and it enables you to build, I think, different relationships or it removes some of the barriers to relationship building that we have here. And it, I think that's why the experiences that people have and the relationships they forge on the trail, the trail community is really strong and unique and 
and whether it's the Long Trail or the Appalachian Trail or or any of the the other ones out there, it's it's kind of an odd experience to to be part of, and you kind of have to experience to see it. Uh, it's very natural. Yeah, you know that that's that's a really interesting point as well, and uh, you know that's something that. Um that I really didn't anticipate, you know, when I went into my first, you know, long distance hike that, um, hiking that northernmost section of the Appalachian Trail, you know, I was definitely going into it thinking that, you know, this was going to be, uh, this, this amazing, you know, uh, experience out in the natural world. I was going to commune with nature in a way I never had before, but I, I really, you know, the, the connections that I developed with the other people on the trail and, and experiencing that really unique trail community, um, that was a surprise to me. Um, and you know, it, it is this really interesting balance. I mean, you, you, you do, you always, I mean, you have a lot of time to yourself, you know, when you're by yourself, no matter what. Um, but you also have this really interesting community of people that are experiencing the same thing that you are, um, as you're experiencing it. And, and you do, you develop these really, um, you develop connections with people that, that I think are different, you know, on a different level than um, you would maybe experience outside of that, that situation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, as a way to kind of wrap things up, um, you know, I think it might be good to just talk about good trail practice, um, you know, ways for people uh, who, who love to spend time out on long trail or, or any long distance hiking trail um, for that matter, you know, what can these people do while they're out on the trail to help protect these natural areas and ensure that future generations are, are able to share in this experience? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things you can do, you know, certainly bringing someone along with you and, and letting other people get outside and, and experience the outdoors and, and make that connection is a big thing. So, opening up that world. If you're out there an avid hiker and you're an experience and you're experiencing it, it's great to bring someone along whether a friend or, or family member to, um, to help them build their, their connection with the land through, through hiking and through the outdoors. And I, I think the other thing I would say is, is volunteer, whether it's, it doesn't have to be with the green mountain club or, but it could be with your local, your local trail system or, or, or something else locally where you are able to give back. And it's, it's, it's really the volunteers in large part that make these systems work that there's not enough money and there's not enough staff to make it happen. And so the ability of volunteers to maintain the trails, maintain the shelters, uh, do the work to keep the system going is, is essential. And that I think happens as well at the, at the local level. I mean, the green mountain club, right. is still, a volunteer-driven, largely organization, right? I mean, most of the folks that are doing those trail work, uh, you know, all this, the, the trail work that keeps the trail going, um, they're, they're mostly volunteers, right? Yeah, so we have 14 sections or 14 chapters, and they're all more or less responsible for a portion of trail, for a section of trail. And, and the members of those sections are, are out there maintaining the trail. They, they clean the trail in the spring. They maintain shelters. We have adopters, and they're they're constantly the eyes and ears on the trail and, and keeping the system going. The, the trail is always in a state of change and decline and it needs to be built back up. And then that's supplemented with paid crews, professional crews that may build a shelter or work on a construction project on the trail or a relocation. But it's that mix and the connection to the volunteers that, that keeps the system going. And you know, these are folks that love the trail and they have a special relationship with it and they really get to spend time and get to know an area really, really well. And they're, 
it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity if folks are interested. That's something that is obviously specifically relevant to, you know, folks in Vermont um, or, you know, in northern New England um, who really enjoy spending time on these trail systems. You know, there's always opportunities to, to volunteer, whether it's on these trail crews or other opportunities. Um, but I mean, there are, you know, the long trail was America's first long distance hiking trail, as we talked about. But, you know, um, in the hundred plus years um, uh, in, in that intervening time, I mean, there are lots and lots of long distance hiking trails right. all across the U.S. these days. In, in Idaho, we have the Idaho Centennial Trail, which goes all the way north to south through the state of Idaho. It's over a thousand miles long. Um, there are... Um, Lots and lots of these hiking trails um, that traverse individual states or, you know, and then there's a handful that, that um, you know, go even greater distances like, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail and obviously the Appalachian Trail. So there, there really are a lot of opportunities out there to, to get involved and, you know, to get out on a long distance hiking trail for an extended period of time, but also to, to volunteer and, and, and uh, play an active role in um, maintaining these trails and making sure that that other people have the ability to uh, have these really special experiences as well and, and, and help right. protect the land uh, in the process, you know. That's right. Thanks a lot, Mike, for, for coming on the show and uh, sharing all of this great information and, and all of your experiences as well. Um, yeah, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's been great and appreciate you having me on, Matt. All right. That was our conversation with the executive director of the Green Mountain Club, Mike DeBonis. I love how Mike refers to the trail as the great equalizer, something that breaks down barriers and allows hikers to interact with both themselves and with each other on a level playing field. This is very true to the experience that I had on Long Trail, and it's, it's neat to hear that Mike experienced something similar. So if you've never been on a long-distance hike, maybe this conversation will inspire you to undertake a new adventure. Um, and if you're looking for a way to get actively involved in the trail community, volunteering on a trail crew, as Mike suggests, is a great way to meet interesting people and also help support these trail systems at the same time. We'll have links to the Green Mountain Club's website on our show notes page, and I'll include specific links outlining volunteer opportunities with Green Mountain Club and others. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC48. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.